welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name is Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture, tracking the story that unfolds there. In today's episode, we're going to look at Ezekiel's prophecies about the New Covenant and the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Now, before we get into the discussion, a couple of reminders here on the front end. One, if you're wanting to follow along, I almost always use the New American Standard 95 translation. And if I use something different, I'll let you know. Uh, Secondly, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you're familiar with the review that I do at the beginning of each episode. It takes us somewhere now to around the 18 to 20 minute mark. And of course, this review is for the benefit, particularly of those who haven't been listening from the very beginning to kind of understand how we got to where we are in the story. Um, For those of you who have been listening along and the uh, review is something burdensome, then I'd encourage you to fast forward to the 18 or 20 minute mark and uh, meet us there. For everybody else, let's get into the key developments of the story and think about how they've moved the story forward to where we're going to be talking about today. And so we begin with Adam and Eve, who were created and commissioned to rule as God's representatives. They enjoyed a fully functional relationship with Yahweh, including all the blessings that He provided to them as His representatives. But in spite of all these blessings, the serpent was able to stir up discontentment in them. He convinced the woman to pursue her own ideas of good and evil independent of God. This was not only an explicit rejection of God's rule, it was also a rejection of her unique role in this creation. Now, this is where the man should have stepped in and led, and through that leadership, subdued the serpent and protected the woman. He didn't do that. He relinquished leadership to her, following her as she followed the serpent. So the man failed in his first opportunity to rule and subdue as God's representative. And although man has never lived up to this created purpose, it remains as God's express purpose for him. And whether or not he will ever fulfill this purpose remains the driving question of the story. Now in this failure, he brought a curse upon the ground that he was supposed to care for and protect. He'd been formed from it, and now he's doomed to return to it. Instead of the bounty it had produced for him in the garden, it's now going to yield thorns and thistles. This is his new reality under the curse. Fortunately, Yahweh wasn't content to leave him there, and he's been acting ever since to restore mankind to what he created him for. He wants him to enjoy the blessing that goes with living in alignment with him rather than having to live under this curse. And so he started this restoration in the garden. Genesis 3.15, he promised the woman that one of her seed would ultimately rule and crush the head of the enemy. And in the following verse, he says that the woman will desire this man and he must rule over her. At the time, this statement was uh, somewhat unclear, but the development of this promise is one of the main thrusts that drives the story forward. And as the story moves forward, man's persistent in his commitment to live independent of God. He's pursuing life on his own terms right up through Noah's day. Noah's the rare exception. He's the lone seed of the woman, the one who has chosen to align himself with God in submission to Him. This wholesale determination by everybody else to live life on their own terms had produced an earth that was filled with violence. In response to this persistent defiance, Yahweh sends judgment, wiping out mankind in the flood. Only Noah and his seed are preserved in the ark, and upon their exit from the ark, Yahweh makes a covenant with them. This is the covenant of the rainbow in which he promises to never again destroy mankind with a flood. Now, this is a major development in that it formalizes Yahweh's determination to respond to man with mercy. 
He knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and if he doesn't act in mercy, man's never going to survive. Now, in connection with the covenant of the rainbow, Yahweh recommissions no one his sons, and this commission echoes back to the original commission of Adam with some significant additions. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, which is almost verbatim what he told Adam. But dominion over the animals is stated a bit differently. Yahweh says that he has given all the creatures into the hand of Noah and his sons, which means that he's given Noah and his sons authority over the animals. So the essence is the same, although it's stated differently. But it's in connection with this dominion that one of these additions appears. See, not only is man to rule over the creatures, but every living thing is given to him for food, just as Yahweh had previously given him the green plants for food. The only restriction is that he's not to eat the blood of the animal because that's tied to its life, and to eat its blood would be to eat its life, and this is forbidden. Now, this notion that the blood of animals is set apart or sacred leads to another new element that's even more significant, and that is that any man or animal who spills the lifeblood of a man is to forfeit his own lifeblood at the hands of man. The stated reason for this is because man was created in the image of God. To kill a man is to kill one who was created to represent God. But the placement of this and the development of the story, I think, reveals something else. See, I don't think Yahweh randomly threw in the death penalty for murder. He establishes this law because of the situation that brought about the flood. The earth was filled with violence. I think the implication of that is that murder was rampant. And so now, with the fresh start after the flood, that act, murder, carries the death penalty. Nevertheless, in spite of the fresh start, by the time we get to Babel, which is within 100 to 300 years after the flood, man is again united in his defiance of God's commission and purpose for him. Yahweh responds to this defiance by confusing his languages and dividing him into nations which he gives over to the dominion of Satan and the demons who followed him in rebellion against Yahweh. The best that the people of these nations, which is come to be known as the Gentiles, the best that they can hope for is a life lived under the curse. But that doesn't mean that Yahweh is giving up on his determination to bring blessing to all these nations. He chooses a man named Abraham and offers him a promise in the form of a covenant. And this is, of course, the Abrahamic covenant. We summarize this under three main points. First, Abraham's seed will become a new nation distinct from all the nations that were created at Babel. And this nation is going to exist in relationship with God. This is a restoration of the relationship that Yahweh had originally created all men for. Secondly, this nation is going to possess the land promised to Abraham by Yahweh. And thirdly, this nation will hold a special status as the promise holder of blessing. In other words, it's going to be through Abraham's seed that God is going to bring the promised blessing that the Gentiles as a whole have universally rejected throughout the story. Now, this covenant is an extension of the promise made to the woman back in the garden, and it provides the framework through which Yahweh will work out his purpose of restoring man to what he created him to be and to enable him to enjoy the blessing that Yahweh offers him. As the story unfolds, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Because of a famine, they go down to Egypt, where they're enslaved and grow into a people that's at least 2 million strong. Then, after 400 years, Yahweh raised up Moses, who brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh enters into the Mosaic Covenant with them, establishing the relationship that was part of his covenant with Abraham. Yahweh is now living among his people, that is the nation of Israel, in a functional relationship. And it's important to understand how this covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant. 
That is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is subordinate in that it comes after the Abrahamic Covenant and does not invalidate or replace it, but rather supplements it. And it's supplemental in that it provides the means through which Abraham's seed will enjoy the relationship promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. Under this Mosaic Covenant, Yahweh requires the people of Israel to be completely devoted to Him with all their hearts. He spells out in great detail what that devotion is going to look like. They'll do this. He'll bless them as a nation in the land He's promised them. Specifically, this means that they will be chief among all the nations and will experience abundant fertility in their crops, in their herds, and in their own offspring. And in this, they'll manifest to the other nations the glory of living under Yahweh's blessing. And it's in this that we recognize another distinction between the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. Israel would either experience blessing or cursing, depending on whether they obeyed or not. The Abrahamic covenant, by contrast, is unconditional. Having established the covenant with Abraham, Yahweh will make Israel into a nation through whom he brings blessing to all the Gentile nations. Now, before they get into the land, Moses is replaced by Joshua, who actually leads them in to begin to take possession of the land. However, once they get there, they repeatedly fail to live up to their covenant responsibilities in this relationship with Yahweh. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. In other words, they're still living under the deception of the serpent that started all the way back in the garden. And in the book of Judges, we're introduced to the solution. That is, they're going to need a king, someone who, through his leadership, will turn their hearts toward Yahweh. Now, as we follow the story, Israel had come to a similar conclusion, at least in the fact that they wanted a king. But the king they want is a king like all the other nations have, and so God gives them that first to show them the folly of this desire. He gives them Saul, but Saul is independent and self-willed. In other words, he's doing what's right in his own eyes. So Yahweh doesn't allow him to retain the throne and ultimately kills him, replacing him with David. David's the king that they need. He's a man after God's own heart who was able to turn Israel's heart back toward Yahweh so that they were no longer doing what was right in their own eyes. As a result of David's faithfulness in shepherding Israel, Yahweh makes a covenant with him. This is the Davidic covenant, which is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. And it provides important details about the seed of the woman who's going to come and rule. And we summarize this with four major points. Uh, One is that Yahweh promised to make David's name great. And then secondly, Yahweh will establish Israel in the land so that they will dwell securely there. In other words, their nation is never going to be overthrown. And this ties in with the third element of the promise. Yahweh will establish a dynasty in which David's seed will rule over this securely established kingdom The house of David, in other words, is going to be an eternal dynasty. And this second and third points are going to be relevant in the passage that we look at today. And then fourthly, David's seed will build a house for Yahweh's name. Now, David is succeeded on the throne of Israel by Solomon, his immediate seed, who begins to fulfill elements of the Davidic covenant. However, after starting out strong, Solomon doesn't finish well. Rather than loving God, Solomon loves women, and these women turn his heart away from Yahweh, to worship the gods of the surrounding nations from which they came. So, in keeping with the terms of the Davidic covenant, Yahweh disciplines the house of David, which results in a divided kingdom. The line of David continues to rule over Judah and Benjamin and make up the southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes who rebelled against the house of David formed the northern kingdom, and from this point all the way up into the exile, they're what's known as the kingdom of Israel. Now, as we track the story through the divided kingdom, 
We find that all the kings of the northern kingdom were evil, leading Israel away from Yahweh, worshiping golden calves as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Their persistent refusal to worship Yahweh brought upon them the full force of the curses promised in Deuteronomy. Specifically, what this means is that Yahweh brought against them the Assyrian Empire, who crushed them and carried most of the people into captivity, scattering them among other regions of the Assyrian Empire. This uh, happened in 722 B.C. Unfortunately, the southern kingdom, Judah, chose a path that wasn't all that different from the northern kingdom. And in spite of reforms by kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, Judah's repeated spiritual adultery brought them under the curses of the covenant as well. They were crushed and led into exile by the Babylonians who reduced reduced Jerusalem to rubble in 586 B.C. But as we closed out the book of Kings, we were reminded that the curses of Deuteronomy weren't final, and Yahweh's promise to David still stands. One of his seed will reign over Israel, firmly established in the land promised to Abraham. The kingdom of this promised seed will be an eternal kingdom which will never be conquered. And now we've turned our attention to the prophets who ministered throughout the period of the divided kingdom. And so we've covered Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah. We took an extended look at Isaiah, who was ministering at roughly the same time as these other prophets. And in Isaiah, we found that in spite of Yahweh's patient care and provision, the people of Israel and Judah are simply going through the motions in their relationship with Yahweh. Their hearts are turned away, and they're pursuing life independent of Him and all He offers them. This independence manifests itself in three general areas of sin. First, in corruption and injustice in society, as the weak and the needy are oppressed. Secondly, in trusting in agreements with other nations rather than Yahweh to protect them from their enemies. And then thirdly, worshiping the idols of these other nations, even while giving lip service to their devotion to Yahweh. And they've persisted in this independence throughout the divided kingdom, although Yahweh's discipline of them has become increasingly severe. Isaiah warns them that this persistence is short-sighted. The story is unfolding according to Yahweh's long-established plan. He's in control. The schemes of men and nations ultimately don't matter because they don't take his plans into account, and his plans are what determines the course of the story and the destiny of all men. In the short term, these plans involve the continued discipline of his people, the people of Israel. They're going to be humiliated and sent into captivity for their idolatry. In the long term, these plans are going to culminate in the day of Yahweh when Christ will return, pour out God's judgment on all who oppose Him, and take His place as the King who will establish His kingdom on the earth. This will be a kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace, where the weak and vulnerable will be protected and the wicked will be destroyed. As a result of Christ's reign, harmony will be restored among all living creatures and the Gentile nations are going to be drawn to Him that he might teach them his ways. Those among his people who live in anticipation of his arrival will be renewed and strengthened. He's chosen them as his servant, and unlike their enemies, they have nothing to fear. But all these enemies, all who oppose Yahweh and his people, well, they're going to be destroyed. Now, as we worked our way through the message of Isaiah, we encountered another servant that Yahweh will raise up. We learned about this servant through a series of four servant songs. As we move through these songs, we came to recognize this servant as the seed of David, the Messiah, or the Christ, the one who's going to establish the kingdom that we just described. However, now we learn that 
in the course of his mission, he's going to face such intense opposition that it's going to look like he failed. He's going to be beaten and abused and humiliated. And as men observe his humiliation, they're going to assume that his suffering is deserved, that he's under Yahweh's judgment for his sin. So he's going to be abhorred and despised. As it turns out, he is under God's judgment, suffering for sin. But it's not for his sin. He's suffering for the sins of Israel and indeed for the sins of the whole world. He willingly presents himself as a guilt offering to atone and make restitution for sin in order to restore Israel to Yahweh. And it's because of this humble obedience that he will ultimately be elevated above the kings and princes of the earth. It's because of all the suffering he willingly endures that he will be exalted as the Messiah or the Christ, the king who will establish this kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. Isaiah also reveals a lot about the day of Yahweh and the restoration that Messiah will bring. At the time that the restoration begins, all the peoples of the earth are going to be lost in deep darkness. But with the Messiah's coming, the glory of Yahweh is going to shine on Judah. Not only will Jerusalem be the location of the Messiah's throne, but also of Yahweh's temple. And the light of this glory will not only illumine Jerusalem, but it will draw kings from the other nations, and the Gentile nations will be drawn to him that he might teach them his ways. In addition to their wealth, these nations will also bring with them the descendants of Israel, which were scattered among the nations. So Jerusalem will be a bustling, vibrant city full of the glory of Yahweh and the wealth of the nations of the world. And because of the restoration, the people of Jerusalem will be righteous with a righteousness that exceeds anything they're capable of. Of course, this righteousness will be the work of Yahweh. Israel's barrenness is going to be replaced by an unprecedented abundance of offspring, which comes through faith. And this abundance will extend to the land as both crops and herds will produce unprecedented bounty. Curse of Genesis 3 is going to be replaced by blessing in Messiah's kingdom. Life is going to be extended. Infant mortality is going to go away. 100-year-old man is going to be considered young. People will live long enough to enjoy the fruits of their labors and to wear out the works of their hands. Another significant revelation in Isaiah is that this restoration is going to be accomplished through a new covenant that Yahweh will make with his people. This covenant will not be tied to great deeds that must be done. He'll establish this covenant with them when they adopt a humble and contrite spirit and tremble at his word. When they repent of their independence and self-will in order to learn his thoughts and his ways, which are incomparably, incomparably superior to theirs, and which will ultimately accomplish all that he intends. Now, when we finished up Isaiah, we followed that with a a couple of episodes on Jeremiah. Jeremiah began his ministry in 627 B.C., which was 22 years before Nebuchadnezzar's first deportation of exiles, which would have occurred in 605 B.C. So he probably ministered from that time, 627, up until about 582 B.C., which would have been four years after Nebuchadnezzar finally reduced Jerusalem to rubble in 586. Now, as I've worked through Jeremiah, I find that the first 23 chapters, everything there is pretty familiar. Judah's persisted in her sin, and Yahweh's going to bring judgment on her, sending her into exile. Uh, The only difference I notice between that and the other prophets, particularly Isaiah, is that this judgment is now imminent. In fact, in chapter 24, we found that Nebuchadnezzar had already deported some of the people from Jerusalem. And so we looked at the messages of chapter 24 through 29, which turned around this reality. 
And as we worked through that, we were surprised to discover that those who had already gone into captivity are characterized as those who are in God's will. By contrast, those who remain in Jerusalem are not in a good place, and they're ultimately going to be slaughtered. Yahweh is placing Judah and the surrounding nations under the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. All who resist him will be destroyed, and only those who submit will be survived. This captivity is going to last for 70 years, after which time Yahweh is going to punish Babylon. And those captives who are already in Babylon are to settle in and to seek for the prosperity of Babylon. This is Yahweh's will. In the second episode, we moved into chapters 30 and 31, which again look to the future. Chapter 31, we found an extended treatment of the new covenant that we first encountered back in Isaiah. This covenant will replace the Mosaic covenant as the basis of Israel's relationship with Yahweh. And under this covenant, Yahweh will write his law on the heart of the people who are in the covenant. He will be their God. They will be his people. Every person in the covenant will know him and he will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Of course, this covenant was implemented with the death of Jesus. Uh, He mentions it in uh, the Last Supper in the upper room. Uh, This is the cup of the new covenant. Of course, it's what we celebrate in uh, communion. And so these are some really important contributions that Jeremiah makes to the story. And uh, so now we've moved into the book of Ezekiel and want to look at the, the, the contributions there. Uh, Just a reminder, Ezekiel prophesied from 593 to 571 B.C. And to kind of put this into the context of the story, Nebuchadnezzar carried out three deportations of Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so the first occurred in 605, it was the one which included Daniel. The second one occurred in 597, and we saw that reference in the passage we looked at last time uh, here in Ezekiel. And so it occurred just before uh, four years before Ezekiel began his ministry. And then the third is going to occur in 586, and it's this time that Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed. And so Ezekiel is prophesying here toward the end of Judah as it is ultimately completely destroyed and carried into captivity. And so again, by the time he began his ministry, the first two deportations have already occurred, and his ministry is going to extend 15 years into the exile. Now, as you move through the book of uh, Ezekiel, some key topics that he covers are the coming siege and destruction of Jerusalem. There's some significant details given about that. Uh, Not necessarily that we need them for the development of the story, but they're there uh, as the situation unfolds. The duration of the exile is uh, confirmed. Jeremiah had told us what it was. Uh, There's going to be 70 years, and and Ezekiel uh, gives some attention to that. And then we have the vision of Yahweh's glory departing the temple in Jerusalem. This is in Ezekiel 10 and 11. Uh, The nature of Israel's relationship with Yahweh under the Mosaic covenant of the law involved Yahweh dwelling among them through his presence in the Holy of Holies. And of course, this was first occurred during the tabernacle. And then when the tabernacles were replaced by the temple, then his glory filled the temple. And so that was Yahweh dwelling among his people. So with Israel now headed into exile, Ezekiel sees a vision of Yahweh's glory leaving the temple and then Jerusalem. And so Yahweh is here leaving his people. And this is the looming divorce that we've seen referenced as we move through the prophets. We saw it in Hosea. uh, We've seen it in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. In the last episode, we focused on the first message that we wanted to look at out of Ezekiel, and that was in chapter 16 through 18. And I think there were a couple of major developments or contributions to the story that we found in those passages. Chapter 16 
tracks the development of Jerusalem, and uh, she begins in this in the chapter uh, likened to an unwanted baby girl who had been abandoned to exposure. Uh, but Yahweh sees her and cares for her and nurtures her so that she develops into a beautiful young woman who Yahweh brings under his care and protection as his wife, making her a queen in all her glory. But then the orphan who became a queen becomes a whore. She turns to whoredom, and this is an unprecedented whoredom in that she doesn't sell herself for money. She pays her lovers for uh, their services. And so it's a, it's a, uh, a very uh, graphic depiction of Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And the other one is chapter 18, where Yahweh clarifies that uh, while he is dealing with Israel collectively, uh, his people, uh, each person is individually responsible for their sin. And the point is not perfection, but a heart of humility, a humble heart. And the wicked man who repents will live. And so it's not about, again, getting it right. Uh, the wicked, wicked man who repents will live, but the righteous man who turns away will die. Each man is responsible uh, for uh, their own conduct, their own orientation towards Yahweh. And then uh, chapters 19 through 35, which come after what we looked at last episode, uh, contain more treatments of Judah's sin, Yahweh's unfolding judgment for those sins, as well as his judgment of the surrounding nations. And these are all topics that we've become pretty familiar with. And so we're not going to dive into them, but we want to pick up uh, today in Ezekiel 36. And so 36.1 And you, son of man, so he's talking to Ezekiel, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of Yahweh. Now notice that Yahweh is not speaking to the people of Israel. He's speaking to the mountains. In other words, uh, part of the land. And uh, I think one of the things that I had missed for a long time is the significance that the land, the ground, plays in the development of the story. If we go all the way back to the beginning, man was taken from the ground, right? That's where he was formed. And he was supposed to work the ground, to care for the ground, and to guard it and to protect it. Uh, It was also as a result of man's sin, this ground was cursed. And then in chapter 4, when Cain kills Abel, uh, Yahweh says that his blood, uh, Abel's blood, cries out to him from the ground. And this wasn't a one-time thing. In Numbers 35, uh, we find out that the shedding of innocent blood polluted the land. But as we consider other passages, we find that it's not just murder. Uh, Leviticus 18, uh, sexual sin, sex with a blood relative, sex with a mother or stepmother, with a sister or stepsister, with a granddaughter, with an aunt, sex with a sister-in-law, or even marriage to sisters, sex with a woman during her period, sex with a neighbor's wife, and then we get into child sacrifice to Molech, homosexuality, and sex with an animal. Leviticus 18.24 says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants." But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these things, uh, all these abominations, and the land has become defiled. Here it is again. So that the land will not spew you out. That's why the people of Israel are not to bring these defilements on the land, should you defile it, and, and as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. 
For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. And so we find that the land is uh, plays a central role in the story. And so as we hear Yahweh speak to the land through Ezekiel, let's pay attention to what he says. Uh, and you're going to find that it's in line with a lot of the things that I just mentioned. Verse 2, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession. In other words, these are the two things that the enemy is speaking against the land. They're saying, aha. And the everlasting heights of the land have become our possession. Verse 3, Therefore prophesy, he's talking now to Ezekiel, and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, For good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side, that you would become a possession of the rest of the nations, as uh, and you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. And so the net effect of what he's saying here is that the land is suffering because of the sins of the people, which is what he said would happen uh, in the passages we just referenced a few minutes ago. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, again addressing the mountains, hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, to the desolate waste and to the forsaken cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. And so the the whole land, including the cities, the ravines, the valleys, everything is destroyed because of the sin of Israel. Um, therefore, verse 5, Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to derive uh, to drive it out for a prey. Right? Therefore con- uh, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains of the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. So just if it's not clear as I'm reading through this, so the land has suffered because of the sin of Israel. And so Yahweh has brought these other nations against Israel to punish Israel. In the process, these other nations have taken possession of some of this land, thinking that it's theirs. And uh, Yahweh is assuring the land that he is going to look out for it. And so as he continues in verse 7, Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. And so there's looking forward to a time when the land will be restored and will produce the bounty for the people of Israel. Verse 9, and he still remember speaking to the land. So he's talking about what he's going to do for Israel, but it's couched in terms of how he's going to work through the land. Um, for I, behold, I am for you and I will turn to you. And you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities will be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast. They will increase and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly and will treat you better than at the first. Right, And so there's all of these blessings that are going to come upon the land. And of course, it's going to be enjoyed by the people who are there. 
right? And so, but he says here, look at this, thus you will know that I am Yahweh. And the point uh, that's going to permeate the chapters that we're looking at is that the land, the people, the surrounding nations are going to know through Yahweh's actions that he is Yahweh. Continuing in verse 12, yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Verse 13, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your nation of children, therefore you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord Yahweh. And so it's worth pausing here to uh, think about uh, what's being said here. Uh, you will become an inheritance and never again bereave them of children, which implies that they have been bereaving them of children. Right? And in fact, as we saw in verse 13, because they say to you, the people of Israel, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your nation of children. Right, And so there is this perspective that this is a hard land uh, that is uh, taking the lives of the people, the young men uh, and, and the children of Israel. And we've seen this if, if we go back and think back in the story, all the way back in Numbers 13, when the spies spied out the land in Numbers 13, 32, this was a part of the report. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it were men of great size. And so here's this devouring the inhabitants. And so the land was indeed a harsh land, particularly when the people weren't living under Yahweh's blessing, which is the relevant point here. That's what we're talking about. They've been disobedient. And so Yahweh isn't bringing the blessing. If you remember back in Deuteronomy 11, uh, verse 8, he says, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to them and to their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your garden and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. didn't take much to produce a crop in, in Egypt. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, and a land for which Yahweh your God cares. Right. So here we see in that care um, in his message through Ezekiel, well, it was talked about back in Deuteronomy 11. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. And so if you shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give you the rain for your land in its season, right? And so that's going to make it uh, bountiful to produce the crops. <clears throat> and he's going to give grass in the fields. But he warns them in verse 16, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, that rain which was critical, and the ground will not yield its fruit, so you will quick, perish quickly 
from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. And that's in Deuteronomy 11, then later at the end of the book, or toward the end of the book in 28, verse 15, he tells them that if you do not obey Yahweh your God to do all his commandments, then the curses are going to come upon you. And the Lord will send curses, confusion, rebuke. He will make pestilence. This is verse 21. Cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you're entering to possess it. He will smite you with consumption, with fever, inflammation, fiery heat, with the sword, with blight, and with mildew. And they pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field, and there will be no one to frighten them away. So Yahweh's response here acknowledges that the land had, in fact, devoured men and bereaved the nation of children. Of course, that's because Israel has not been faithful to their covenant responsibilities, and so they're experiencing the curses, and it's devoured their children. But at the time that this passage here in Ezekiel that we're looking at speaks of, at that time, this is going to stop. And so he continues, this is in Ezekiel 36, 15. I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace, disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord Yahweh. And again, he's speaking to the land here. Now, as he moves into verse 16, he turns his attention from what he has to say to the land to the causes. And so there's a new word. Uh, then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, that's verse 16, 17, son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. This is what we read about uh, back in Leviticus. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. And so this is exactly consistent with what we saw back in uh, at Numbers and Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Verse 19, also I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh. Now, don't miss the connection here. This relationship that Yahweh has with people, I am their God, they are my people. So he has sent them into exile in these other nations, but in their presence there, they are now profaning his name because of how they're living, and they are known as the people of Yahweh. Continuing in verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So we want to follow what he's unfolding here uh, about why he's going to act and how that relates to his holy name and how that should impact the people of Israel. 
He says in verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst. Right? So this keeps getting repeated. Israel, by their conduct as his people, the people who exist in relationship with Yahweh, uh, their conduct, through their conduct, they have profaned his name. And so again, he says, this is verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, right? Israel has not represented Yahweh well as his people. They have profaned his name, right? And so he's going to vindicate his holiness. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And so Yahweh is going to do something in Israel, among the Israelites, who are in the midst of these other nations, to demonstrate that he is Yahweh and to prove himself holy. Verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring to you into your own land. This is the restoration that we've been seeing pretty consistently all the way back through the prophets, particularly in Isaiah. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, it's not real clear yet, but this is Ezekiel beginning to move into the new covenant. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now it's becoming clear. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. This is the land that he was speaking to earlier. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Now, we've pointed this out before. In fact, we reviewed the significance of it uh, back in episode 110, episode before last. Uh, this, this statement, so you will be my people and I will be your God, which is the essence of the relationship that Yahweh uh, has with Israel. It was the relationship that he promised to Abraham in Genesis seventeen seven, And then it was his commitment to the people of Israel when he sent Moses in Exodus 6, 6, right? That was the reason that I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Uh, it was established in Exodus 19, 5, and 6 with the Mosaic Covenant. That was what the Mosaic Covenant was establishing. And then David acknowledges this special status in his response to Yahweh's promise to him in the Davidic Covenant. This is in 2 Samuel 7, 23, and 24. And it, it acknowledges this relationship. And of course, the re- reason that we were reviewing that in episode 110, two episodes ago, was to understand the significance of what Yahweh was promising in this new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So let me reread Jeremiah 31 to 33. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. That was the Mosaic covenant, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant, so this covenant is going to replace the Mosaic covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so this new covenant is going to replace the Mosaic covenant as the basis for Yahweh's relationship with his people. And so that's what Ezekiel is referring to here in chapter 36, is this relationship under the new covenant. And he's going to do that 
to uh, demonstrate his character, his name, to, to redeem his name uh, among the nations. <clears throat> and so as Ezekiel continues to expand on this new covenant, he says in uh, chapter uh, verse 29 of chapter 36, Moreover, speaking, he's now, remember, he's speaking to the people of Israel, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And so this is the blessing that we saw at the end of Deuteronomy that he's promising, right? This is Ezekiel characterizing that same blessing. But notice what's going to happen with the nation of Israel, verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Right? And so in this, Israel is going to be humbled. They're going to remember the evil that they did and how Yahweh has blessed them in spite of their unrighteousness. So he says, verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord Yahweh. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says Lord Yahweh, on the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. Now, this is an important connection here. In this future time, when he cleanses Israel, in that day, he's going to cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. The restoration that we're looking for, that Israel is looking for, is going to happen in the day that he cleanses them from their iniquity. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabitants. Uh, inhabited, I'm sorry. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and will do it. And the point here, it's, I think it's hard for us to catch a full impact of what he's saying here. What he's going to do here is going to be so significant and so unthinkable that it's going to demonstrate that he, Yahweh, has done it. This is not something that could have happened apart from his intervention. Continuing in verse 37 and 38, this is going to wrap up chapter 36. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Now, we miss the significance. We haven't been in uh, Jerusalem uh, during the appointed feast, but three times a year, you remember that every male in Israel was required to come to Jerusalem uh, for the feast, and they were to bring a sacrifice. And so if every man from Israel is in, is in Jerusalem with a sacrifice, then the, the city is overflowing with flocks. And what Ezekiel, uh, what Yahweh through Ezekiel is saying is that Yahweh is going to fill the cities, all these waste cities, with men in the same way that Jerusalem is filled with flocks during the feast. And so when all the, the, the point of what he's saying here is that when all the nations see Israel experience all the blessing described here, 
they'll recognize that this blessing is a result of Yahweh taking Israel as his people. It is as their God that he's going to pour out all this blessing on them. And through this, his name is going to be glorified, and all the nations will know that he is Yahweh. All right, now let me see if I can, in a succinct way, capture the contrast in this last part of this chapter. So in this relationship between Yahweh and Israel, he is their God, they are his people. On their part, as his people, their conduct has brought disrepute to his name. They have profaned his name. Because of their identification with him, they have brought dishonor on his name. And Yahweh is not going to allow his name to remain dishonored. And so he is going to act. And he's going to act not based on what Israel has done, not because of them. It's not that they deserve anything, but he is going to act to glorify his name among the nations. And he is going to show himself holy. He's going to set apart himself among the nations. Now, I think what's not explicitly stated here is that any other God would crush those people for their behavior. But he's not going to act based on what they deserve. In other words, he's going to show mercy. And in that mercy, he is going to bring them back into the land and he is going to bless them abundantly in unprecedented ways. And through this mercy and blessing, he is going to demonstrate to the surrounding nations that he is Yahweh. So with that, we're ready to move into Ezekiel chapter 37 in the uh, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Verse 1, Then the hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. In other words, these bodies, uh, these bones were from bodies long dead. There was no uh, hint of life uh, that they'd ever been alive. Verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord Yahweh, you know. I'm not answering that, right? You know, I think probably if I was in that situation, I'd go, well, pretty clearly they can't live, but I know who you are, so you're the only one that knows whether they can live or not. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, and I don't think Ezekiel is being disrespectful. Verse 4, again, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. And the bones come to, came together bone to its bone. So the bones are starting to reconnect. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And so you've got all these bones in the valley that have reassembled themselves. And then uh, they start to be connected with sinews, with ligaments and tendons, and then muscle grows on them. And then it's covered with skin, but there's no breath. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, son of man, 
and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. Now, uh, something that is worth pointing out here, um, in, in English we lose some of the effect of what's being said here. But uh, the winds, the breath, um, and, and in fact, we're going to see in a little bit, spirit are all the same Hebrew word, ruach. And so uh, there's an emphasis on this breath, wind, spirit theme. And we're just going to have to be aware of that as we move through it. So he says, come from the four ruachs, O ruach, and then breathe is a verb, so it's not ruach. Uh, breathe on the slain that they may come to life. Um, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the ruach, the breath, came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And so these bones reassembled, they reform into fully functional bodies that come to life, right? And they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And they came to life because the ruach, the breath uh, that came from the four winds, entered them and gave them life. Then he said in verse 11, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. All right, so here in verse 11, we're beginning to get an interpretation of the vision. And of course, the bones represent the whole house of Israel. Um, and the fact that they are dry reflects Israel's perspective that they have no hope left. If you think about where we are in the history of Israel, all the rest of Judah has already been taken into captivity, and there have been two deportations from Jerusalem. All the leading men of the city, all the leaders, the elite, uh, they've already been carried off, and so Jerusalem is hanging on by a thread, and uh, there's not much hope left to look forward to. And so in verse 12, he says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. All right, as we try to understand this, it's tempting to see the reference to them coming up out of their graves uh, as individual resurrections. But remember that these bones in the valley collectively represent the house of the whole house of Israel. And in verse 12, he says that I will bring you into the land of Israel. And in verse 14, he says, I will place you on your own land. And I think, so I think what is being depicted here is Yahweh's restoration of Israel. He will bring them out of the graves in the sense that he will bring them out of the lands, out of these foreign nations where they have been scattered as a result of his judgment, right? So they've been separated and in a sense they have experienced death and he's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them out of the land and he's going to put his spirit within them and they will come to life and he will place them in the land. So this is the collective restoration of Israel. And I think as we move through the chapter, that will become more apparent. 
Now, one of the things I want to just emphasize from these verses is the statement that I will put my spirit within you. And of course, that ties back to what we saw in verse 27 of the previous chapter, where he says, I will put my spirit within you. And we saw that as a reference uh, to the new covenant. And so this restoration that's being described uh, and depicted in the bones coming back together and then forming a body that comes to life, that restoration and what they will be brought back into the land is tied to the new covenant and Yahweh's spirit, his Ruach. Remember that we, we talked about that, the wind blowing, uh, the breath, uh, spirit is, is that other word. Uh, that's going to be accomplished through the new covenant when Yahweh puts his spirit within them. And this brings up one other thing that as I think through this, while this is going to happen collectively with Israel, it's going to be the result of individual decisions. Remember the new covenant says they will each know me. This is in Jeremiah from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so there will be a collective turning uh, of the nation of Israel as the individuals each enter into this new covenant in a direct knowledge uh, in their relationship with Yahweh. And when that happens, the nation of Israel will be brought back to life, restored in, in the land. Uh, and so all of that's, uh, and I, I want to be careful there not to make too much of the sequence, but all of that is tied together. And this picture is going to continue to unfold as we move through chapter 37. When we move into verse 15. Uh, we have uh, a, another illustration here through uh, the word of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came again to me saying, And you, son of man, so he's talking to Ezekiel, take for yourself one stick and ride on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and ride on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions, right? So he's got these two sticks, one that says for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions, and another stick that says for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. So this represents the two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, uh, that existed during the divided kingdom. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, so that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes." Say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. Okay, so we've got all the way back to 36, the message to the mountains, and we've got this unification, the, the, the restoration of the nation of Israel to life, uh, from a condition in which it looked like they were so dead that life was impossible. And now, in that restoration of life, uh, the, the Judah and all of the people associated with Judah and Israel and all the people associated with Israel are going to be reunited uh, into a single nation and brought into their own land, right? I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel's, 
and one king will be king for all of them. Right? So they're not going to have two two kings. They're not going to be two nations. One king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And here's that phrase again, and they will be my people and I will be their God. And what we're looking forward to is a time when this relationship functions as it should. And so um, you've got a restoration of Israel to life when it looks like there is no hope for life. Um, And then they are brought together into a single nation. They are restored, Israel and Judah, right, under one king. Verse 24, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And so now we've got the Davidic covenant, and watch how this plays out. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. This is something we've seen all through Isaiah. Uh, We've seen it in Jeremiah, that there will be finally a time where Israel walks in faithfulness with Yahweh. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And so this is a reference to the peace of the Davidic covenant, which says that Israel will be firmly established in the land. He continues, he says, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. This is the third element of the Davidic covenant, that David's seed will have a kingdom, a dynasty that is unending. And of course, this is going to be uh, fulfilled in the eternal reign of Christ from Jerusalem. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And so he's going to have a dwelling place. Verse 27, my dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so he's going to be dwelling in their midst in relationship with them. Verse 28, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And so with that, we come to the end of the chapter. This relationship that God has been pursuing all the way back, what he promised to Abraham, what he was pursuing when he sent Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, is finally going to be manifest here in a way that the nations are going to see what it looks like to live in relationship with Yahweh. He's going to be dwelling in the midst of his people. Now, as we move into the making sense of life portion, there's really three things that I want to bring to your attention. First is to consider this imagery of Israel as a valley full of dry bones. And think about uh, the historical development from the, the time that Ezekiel makes this prophecy. There's already been two deportations. Uh, the third deportation is looming. And with that third deportation, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so it will not exist as a nation. Now, they're going to be in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And then the Babylonians are going to be replaced, conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And under the Medes and the Persians, uh, there's going to be a return to the land, the return from exile. That's going to be at the end of the 70 years. But Israel will not become a kingdom. It will be a province 
of the Medes and the Persians. It'll be a part of their empire, and it will be under the, uh, the Persian king. And then the Persians are going to be conquered by the Greeks, who will in turn be conquered by the Romans, and the Romans are going to be uh, ruling during the time of Christ, of course. Uh, and still at this point, Israel is not a uh, standalone sovereign nation. They exist under the, the rule and control of Rome. And so Herod is a king, but he's king over a Roman province that's much larger than uh, just Israel. And uh, so th- they're not existing as an independent nation. And uh, then in AD 70, because of rebellion in Jerusalem, uh, the Romans are going to crush Jerusalem and destroy it. And so Israel will not be uh, a, a nation from that time, uh, exist in any formal form uh, up until 1948. And in May of 1948, as a result of uh, the British mandate or the end of the British mandate and all that was happening in the Middle East, uh, nation, uh, uh, Israel as a nation came into existence again. I think it was in May. Uh, but they are not the nation that is depicted here. There is no seed of David uh, reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. That hasn't happened for 2,608 years as I'm making this podcast. Uh, and that's roughly, I didn't calculate exact dates, right? But for over 2,600 years. And so this this notion that Israel uh, as dry bones in whom there is no life as depicted here is very real. As the nation that Yahweh established in the Old Testament, that nation is long dead. There's absolutely no life left in the bones, um, and, and which is what we have depicted here. Yet the promise here is that Yahweh is going to bring Israel, as represented by these bones, back to life. The skeleton's going to be reassembled. The bones are all going to be reconnected. They're going to be connected together with sinew. They're going to be covered with muscle and skin and filled with breath. And so Yahweh is going to do what is seemingly impossible and fulfill all of his promises to a nation that has been dead for more than 2,600 years. And through all of this, all the nations will know that he is the incomparably great Yahweh. This brings me to the second thing. And originally, I think I said there were three things I wanted to do in the making sense. Uh, I'm going to leave one of those off. I think it would be too much of a distraction to where this is gone. Uh, but the other thing that I want to mention here uh, is as I work through these passages and read the unfolding story, um, what strikes me is the richness and complexity of the story that Yahweh is unfolding. And as we consider what he's revealed, we get glimpses of a future that are much more amazing and glorious than we can even begin to comprehend, right? Uh, and, and I think that's okay. No, I know it's okay, right? In fact, I think sometimes we get in trouble when we try to uh, be too specific about defining it. We catch glimpses here and there, but we don't have to understand it now. For now, we simply need to humble ourselves before Yahweh and live our lives in anticipation of the arrival of His Christ, Jesus, 
who will bring about this unfathomable kingdom with all its glory. And at that point, uh, then we will know, even as we are known, and we're going to experience this glory in all its fullness in a way that we cannot now comprehend. So we don't have to understand it now. In fact, I don't think we can. Paul, uh, in uh, Romans 8, talks about the suffering that we have as we live in anticipation of this. And he says, I don't consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And so there is something much more amazing that is coming. And so we wait, living our lives in humble obedience as an expression of the faith of God's goodness and all that He's promised, and look forward to what we can't even begin to imagine. I hope you're finding this helpful. Hope you're helping. It's helping you orient uh, your life to the larger story and how to make sense of it. Uh, it is always a privilege to get to share this with you, uh, and I'm grateful. Any comments or questions? Garth at TrueQuest.us is a dedicated email. Um, and uh, this podcast is a ministry of TrueQuest Outfitter Ministries. If you're finding value in what we're doing here and want to support it, you can do so at truequest.us. Until the next episode, I pray God's blessings are upon you.